Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes. And I'm Momentum. And we are 32-year Wall Street veterans who have had to take on secret identities and go underground in order to provide you with our candid views on a handful of stocks we screen for here in the the shop each week. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news. But our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air, so we've disguised our voices, and they'll never know. This week, it's July 12, 2013. We're back, back on the air after a couple of months of uh, who knows what you know, vacationing. You, 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 really. you notice the market always rallies well, when we when we take off. Yeah, that's why we do it to give the market a little breathing. Um, so uh, we're back with three great value ideas this week that came off a screen. Uh, I'll talk about in a minute. But first, some very important caveats. First. This show is for entertainment purposes only. It's not a guarantee. Secondly, Mo and I are professional portfolio managers during the week, and we do a lot of very careful analysis. We do seven-year to ten-year forecasts on income statements, cash flow statements, balance sheets. We talk to management. We talk to competitors. And here on the show, we've been very careful to do absolutely none of that. So we'll have none of that. Third, our lawyers say to remind you that we may not have your best interests in mind, so do your own work. And finally, uh, well, I've been drinking this week. I know you haven't. I'm, I'm surprised you're not on a, in a sugar coma. Why would that be? Well, a dinner of Twizzler 6. That's, they're good for you. That's what my doctor said. Anyway, see all our caveats, disclosures, uh, links to past shows, and hundreds of tickers that we've done over the years at www.thevalueguys.com. We've also got a Facebook uh, link out there. Value Guys, and we uh, tweet at Value Guys when we do a new show or if we're going to do an appearance. Right. Right? Something like right. that. So check all that out, and uh, I guess uh, let's uh, get on with the show. We're going to have, uh, as always, at the front of the show, we have something called The Value Guys Wall Street News featuring Momentum back from his uh, trip to Colorado. Sojourn. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. It's uh, it's uh, no longer the Mile High State. It's now the uh, the Mile High City. It's the All High. City. Everyone's High City. It's right. amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, I said I said last week. Um, you remember that that the Colorado State Legislature was now forecasting how many people in the state are going to smoke pot. Well, you're tracking that story, uh, right? How much how much they're going to spend. How much the state is going to tax it, and you know what their what their tax revenues are going to be, and of course, like all good states, they've already spent the money that they anticipate getting from bond sales. Let me um, ask you something: <clears throat> When you're covering this, do you ever run into John Stewart? No. Just curious. No. Anyway. He's, look, he's looked at this issue extensively, though. Well, I'm just curious if you see him at the uh, venture capital meetings, that kind of thing. <laughs> So the state has got this big dilemma. They have to figure out whether they're how they're going to get get to their revenue targets, and the only way they're going to do that is by increasing pot consumption throughout the state. They're already basing this on they need twelve percent of the population to be right stoned, and uh, based on the the numbers now, because of the shortfall, they're going to need twenty seven percent of the population to be stoned and buying pot. To fuel so they're their, advertising. They got an advertising budget. Well, like there was this big issue of crazy, how, how are they going to do this? How, what what is really going to trigger the you know the, the broad based use of pot throughout the state to generate revenues? And they got their answer in the last couple of weeks. Hmm. 
I just just came back. Everyone is talking about um, this guy, Justin Hartfield. Justin Hartfield. Okay. He is a former, and I don't know, no one ever says exactly what he did at Microsoft, but apparently he made a lot of money at Microsoft. Microsoft, sure. And, They're uh, behind all these things. He is now launching what he says is going to be the Starbucks of pot. Okay. If this is going to go mainstream. In Colorado. He's in going. Colorado. He is going to be the guy that becomes sort of the uh, the early pot magnet. It's it's they call it now, um, you know they've got big pharma, they've got big ag. Yeah. Uh, I think they now got uh, I don't know big marijuana or big what. Really, I don't know. I mean you you were out there for months. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I thought you were coming back after a couple of weeks. I'm now starting. I thought to I was <laughs> coming back after a day, but you know what? Every day I woke up and. So let me ask you: We've got we've got listeners interested in value. Is there a way to play this? Is there a stock? Is there some way to get in on this? There what? may be a way, yeah, because the venture capital firm we talked about some time ago, and you've actually got it up on your screen, is uh, accepting money to be putting into this, and so. You know, you look at the trends and you say the states now, depending on these revenues, you've got the Starbucks of pot moving in. The venture capital firms that are going to finance this growth, which is now looking to be pretty explosive. I mean, it's, it's gaining a lot of momentum. Well, I know that compared to the value of soybeans per pound, this is pretty uh, Good crop. Good crop. So we'll keep you posted. But, well, uh, here it is. It's who, uh, Emerald Ocean Capital. They are um, specifically looking for investments in this area in Colorado and Washington. Try to get um, get something going there. Yeah. Um, so I have to tell you before we before we look at these numbers. Yeah, I've got uh, uh, you know some, uh, the stocks. Yeah. Remember that column that you generated with the you know with the numbers in it. And you couldn't remember or couldn't explain what the formula was. Yeah, well, yeah, I do. Thanks for mentioning that. But, no, but... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, all of my picks were based on that column. <laughs> well, it was some so kind I of ratio... Make, I just want to say that up front. There was some kind of ratio between the 52-week low and the current price, but I couldn't Multiplied quite... Multiplied by one-third. I couldn't quite get at what it was. So. Yeah. So were we... Uh, but that's how I did That's how I did my... Uh, Is that all we have for Wall Street News? Yeah, there's okay. not there's not that much going on except the fact that every time we uh, take off, it seems as though the market pops. So maybe we should just do a show every so often until well, I mean, this bull market's over. I mean, frankly, when the market's going up, people don't need well, the but, value guy. But you just really. told me that the market's up three percent. The the Russell. I've got a couple of okay. So this is the part of the show where we talk about some stocks that come off a screen we run here in the shop. Um, but before we sit, talk about that, you know, we are small cap value investors. The Russell 2000 value is our benchmark. Year to date, that index is up 19.5%. The S&P 500 is up 178 So as usually happens, the small cap value, again, beating the broad indices. Now, that- since we've been off the show, Mo, since our last show, the uh, Russell's up 3.2%. Yeah, S and P up one point two. I think that's a lot of information in that, probably. Yeah. Um, and, and, this, what, and what percentage of portfolios are supposed to be in small cap? You know, that's all over the map. But uh, small cap domestic equity as a allocation to big 
pension funds and foundations and things like that is really it's five five percent five to ten at the most and the problem with that for a lot of people who are looking at total return over many years is that small cap value tends to beat all the other uh, style boxes but it's got volatility okay well what's volatility well the uh, academics say volatility is the variation of the stock price moving up and down and that just reminds me of my friends that own private equity who tell me that their portfolios are absolutely stable because the manager gets to write in the uh, the value and and our funds are volatile here's my point in saying that volatility is not doesn't harm you if you don't look at it and if you have a long-term horizon and you have an active manager that understands when something's cheap and buys it there and understands when something's expensive and sells it there you're going to tend to beat the the broader indices over time and uh, and so I'm on a soapbox professionally to explain to a lot of folks that don't use small cap value because they fear the volatility that uh, over the last 10 years, small cap has had probably 800 basis points uh, of better performance than the S&P per year. And that is a meaningful number to someone's wealth at the end of a period, particularly when you start compounding over 10, 20 years. And from a volatility point of view, yes, it is more volatile, but it's simply more volatile on the upside. So when you're outperforming, obviously your moves up are greater than the comp competing index. And yet people look at total volatility, they should be looking just at downside volatility. And on that metric, small cap holds up just fine. And compared to total return per unit of downside volatility, small cap r really wins uh, versus most style boxes. So. There's my advertisement for small. No, no, that that makes a lot of sense. But I've got do have a question for you, and that is that um, there are stocks that, that that I call them sprinters, and there are stocks that I call them joggers. And when the market has an inflection, and the market starts to move up, the sprinters outperform the market for a period, and then they yeah. run out of gas. Yeah. Then there's the joggers which may not start off as explosively in a market turn, but they just keep going. Yeah. Um, so does the Russell act like a sprinter? Is it going to outperform the market for a little bit and then lose its momentum vis-a-vis -vis the market, or does it just continue? So let's say that this bull market goes on for four more years. Yeah. What does the Russell do? Well, A, who knows? Uh, I'll just say that. But generally speaking particularly during the recent period, the Russell value, 2000 value, which is what most people use as the benchmark for small cap value, is contrasted with the Russell 2000 growth, the index a lot of people use for small cap growth. Both of those indices come out of the Russell 2000, which I think represents the 2000 smallest stocks, something like that. And the Russell 1000 is the biggest 1000, and then the Russell 3000 is all of those added up. So pretty simple but Russell who who is Russell anyway who's Russell where's Russell uh, it's a firm it, it, it's, it's in it's, uh, it's out in Washington somewhere in uh, I don't know it's a long way away from here anyway they have style boxes so small cap growth large cap growth small cap value large cap value and they have 
representative companies in each of those buckets to presumably represent those style boxes. So when you have a manager, you can compare the manager who's actively picking stocks to the computer formula that chooses stocks in these indices. Now, in the case of the value versus growth, here's the thing they do. They rank all the stocks on price-to-book value. The ones in the lower half are value. That makes sense because price-to-book, as flawed as it is, is some type of valuation metric. But here's the rub. In the growth half, it's high-price-to-book. Now, I don't know that high price to book is a growth metric. It frankly isn't. So it's an odd metric. A few years ago, they and actually... that's the sole metric that they base yeah, on? Yeah, well, there's a few others nowadays. But they also, once you're in the top, the second quartile of price to book, they start to blend in stocks in the high, uh, higher half. And so you can actually have one-third or one-quarter of a stock in the Russell 2000 value and three-quarters of that same stock is in the Russell 2000 growth. So they, they to, smooth, to smooth the transition of metrics from value to growth rather than have a hard line between types of companies, they actually start to phase in these other firms. And it's all on their site how they do it, but it's absolutely insane in my opinion. Um, now, having said all that... I will say that in the recent period, in the, in the, uh, the uh, value part of that index, because it's measured on price to book, you have, particularly in a crisis, the dregs of the earth. Every company who you think is going to go bankrupt, every company that can't earn its way out of a bag, ends up in the Russell 2000 value. So why do things bounce off the bottom quickly uh, in the Russell 2000 value? Well. When you have a bunch of dregs, either because they have too much debt or they aren't, you know, they're earning a the break even, as soon as things start to lift a little bit, in effect, the risk of bankruptcy lifts, and so the part of the stock price that represents, you know, the likelihood of going bankrupt, that erodes very quickly once you get into a profitable situation or your stock price starts to move up to where you could sell equity to cover debt. And so you do see that. It's like it's a switch. It's like risk of bankruptcy just went from some positive number to closer to zero, and then you get a pop. So that's right. a long answer. That, okay. Um, all right. Well, I'm sorry about all that. Let's get to this week's screen. Here's the screen. Market cap's between $100 million and $2 billion, so that's definitely small cap this week, and at the low end, that's micro cap. We're looking for stocks that are within 30% of their 52-week low, just to make sure that we're not overpaying in the sense of where the stock's been recently, but maybe we'll allow for a little momentum off the bottom. Momentum is actually does have some positive correlation with returns. So Thank you. I hate to say that, but it's true, Mo. I know. All right. Uh, enterprise value to sales, less than 1.5. And then uh, what else? That's it. The mystery, the mystery column that I based all of my picks on. Well, that was that was some combination of the low and 30% of the low. and Times and some time, number yeah, multiplied by... Uh, anyway, 44 stocks got through the screen. In the universe, there were 211,000, which there must have been a lot of Taiwanese stocks in there or something like that. I don't know how we have so many, but 44 passed the screen. Mo and I carefully went through each one, and we've got three 
exciting stocks for you to talk to, for us to talk about today. C and J Energy ticker CJES, uh, Lindsay Corp ticker LNN, and then Zag Inc ticker ZAGG. How about yeah. that, Mo? I like it. I like All it. Right. What's uh, C and J so, Energy? C&J. You were, you you were telling to... me before the show these guys basically do. Um, Equipment for uh, you know hydraulic fracking and stuff like that, and you were talking well, about the yeah. the longer term demand. Run me run well. That here's what me. I thought. I mean, there's a very high correlation between GDP growth and energy uh, growth, and you know I know everyone wants to get off the uh, carbon fuels here, but I just look around. There's I think 200 million cars. Uh, driving around and so even if we never sold another gasoline engine driven car that fleet is going to be around for a very long time and again I don't think people are going to throw out their cars I don't think the government's going to mandate that you have to throw out your car so uh, the demand for oil uh, and gas is going to be around for a very long time Uh, heaters uh, electricity generation, you know, all these things require carbon fuel. CNJ Energy, they help uh, those people who are involved in drilling wells. They help them uh, in, you know, to, to fract, uh, fracture really the, the, the wells to where you can, you know, crack some of that gas and oil out of the rock that they left behind last time they went in with inferior technology, you know, 30, 40 years ago. They're going back to that same, those same spots, getting what they left behind. And these guys are helping. Um, gas production is apt to continue for a long, long time with its advantages over oil uh, prices per BTU right now. And uh, they're also going to help with oil to the extent that there's also fracking. People don't realize it. It's been in gas, but fracking generates a lot of oil as well. The stock is down a lot because they've missed some numbers, and I'm going to suspect, Mo, that that's because gas prices jumped. They got down as low as, I think, a buck fifty or two bucks per uh, thousand cubic feet, and now they're more in the four to five range. And I know a lot of people pulled assets out of gas when it came down, and and so they're they're missing some business, but it's a good chance it's going to return because the price has returned. But obviously, there's something going on here that's not good in the near term. So, uh, good margins, you know, enterprise value to EBITDA, some kind of cash flow yield, cash on cash return is four times. I look at the inverse, 25% cash on cash. EBITDA margins, EBIT margins, they're very consistently high. They're down from 30% in 2012 to 19 estimated for this year, and that's because people probably took assets out of gas drilling because of the decline in price, but now the price is back up, so it very well may be that a year from now these assets are back into production, but my guess is, Mo, that's what's happened recently. The balance sheet's okay, and uh, it seems like a, a very reasonable long-term holding, and you can enter at a good price here. That's all I got on it. You know, and uh, I was looking at this earlier, and I was thinking the same thing. Because if you read the company description, you see fracking mentioned about four times. Yeah. Then you just sort of assume, okay, it's 
Longer term, that's energy. It's uh, it's something that's systemic. So we're gonna. Oh, are those Twizzlers. Yeah, Twizzlers. I found these here. Let's have some. Where did you find those? My kitchen. <laughs> Thank you, Cassandra. Wow. Now that's the kind of kitchen you you gotta love. Uh, so I'm looking at the the chart and, and I'm thinking, what's wrong here? So the first thing that uh, that I that I wonder is. The stock came, it's only been around since 2011. Came public at what looks to me about $30 a share, and within a couple of months it was at 15 Angry shareholders. Well, I tell you what, there's an interesting story, because when that happens, it's one of two things. One, the stock was overpriced at its IPO, because you got some greedy bankers that are overpricing it. As the, as the market starts to understand what they were sold, they dump. Yeah. And the stock goes back to a normal level. And the Was analyst that, is left holding the bag while the bankers are off spending the check. So I would love to wow. go back historically and just look at that because there was a there was a lot of drama there. It would make a good you know one or two day soap opera. The second thing though, which is a little more problematic, is since 2011 we've had this stunning, stunning market rally. And, true. And it's you know it's been nothing short of breathtaking. And this stock has been trading in a What's that? A twenty to twenty-five dollar range, up and down, and up and down. Once it gets tainted, it's hard to get out of that. You know, well, once you've gone public and pissed everyone off in a couple of weeks. Is it takes that a while. is that what's happening? Because that could wash out of the stock if there's nothing systemic wrong with it. But it is in, I, there's some investigation I think that needs to be done because this thing has been trading sideways since 2011. One thing I want to point out, because that's all true, they've really obviously gotten some people upset. But these guys report segments. And in the 10K report, it's an SEC uh, required filing. You got to you know, you got to split out your segments. They have a segment called stimulation and intervention services. Is that for is that like couples that's therapy? That's your home, right? No. Uh, this is, uh, you're trying to stimulate We're trying to intervene the, uh, and stimulate. You're trying to stimulate the well so that it delivers a little more oil to you. And then you're intervening for some reason that I can't explain. Intervention, I guess that could be if something goes wrong. You need to stop stop stuff from doing something. You know, I, I don't want to get too technical. And an oily well is a happy well. It could be. But here's what I want to point out. They report operating income in this segment of 305 million and they report segment assets of 588 million. So I'm going to just get out my HP 12 which uh, if you don't have one get don't, one. Don't buy one, just buy the app. It's much cheaper. But 305 divided by 588. You know, there was a time I didn't use a calculator on the show, but I'm over that now. That gives me a 52% return on segment assets. You know what that is? Valuable because it's a because it's not really a, a capital based service. It's a, that looks to me like it could be a consulting group. Well, it's uh, and so you wouldn't have huge capital assets, especially if they're stimulating. Which well, or could be mechanical. Could, but I it, mean, there's clearly assets. There's five hundred eighty-eight million. The right. revenues are nine hundred. So they're you right. know they're they're two to one on the uh, asset utilization there. Which again, that's not unheard of. But the thing about the three hundred five, I think that's you know, speaking to me, Mo, is that when they're doing this work for a, for a well, the well owner is hoping to make a million dollars, and the price of the stuff these guys are selling 
is $1,000. So it's just, they're willing to, these guys make an enormous margin. I didn't tell you the margin. It's 30% and the return on assets is 52%, in part because the owner of the well, this is such a tiny amount. It's like the price of paper clips in your office. You just, who, just get me some freaking paper clips. You almost, I'm not going to say you don't care who it is, but you're not going to negotiate price too much. It's probably more about, can you be here on time? Do you ever screw up? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure they rank very well on that. But that return on assets, Mo, is pretty noteworthy. I wanted to bring that up. And that segment alone, in and of itself, could be worth the price of the stock, given that very high return on assets. And it's quite likely some type of annuity that, you know, could be worth... Uh, the enterprise value here is a, a billion two. And that the operating earnings of that one division might be worth three billion. I mean, ten times. Why not? That's that's enormous. So, anyway, uh, this looks pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Next up, again, this past the screen I was talking about forty-four names. Lindsay Corp ticker LNN, one of forty-four names that passed our very stringent uh, screen this week, and. What I like about them is, uh, in addition to that they pass the screen, is simply that it's um, a very attractive uh, business on the same basis I was just talking about in terms of having a segment here that does crop irrigation. So again, the crop is worth a lot, particularly now, crop prices are very high, and they're providing the equipment that waters the crop. So again, not a lot of price negotiation. It's like, Oh, you don't like my equipment? Well, what? And you don't want to repair it? Well, why don't I just take it away? I mean, no, they, you pay. And they do, um, it doesn't break it out here, but I'll bet, you know, a third to even a half of their segment revenue is maintenance, repairing old equipment. And this is one that, again, they have a segment, $80 million in income, $206 million in assets. It's not quite as good as our CJ Energy guys, but that number, Mo, is a 39% return on assets. And they also have a 30% return on do you uh, know, sales on that. Do you know why that return on assets is so high for that division? Well, I think it, you know, there's... I can tell you. Okay. What? The Go assets ahead. Yeah, are concrete blocks. They are. <laughs> That's, this division provides movable barriers. You know, those big, giant no, crashes. That's the infrastructure. That's the infrastructure. Exactly. Well, that business... Yeah, that has a lower margin and a lower return on assets. So the company does two things, crop irrigation right. and then something completely unrelated. Oh, I thought you were talking barriers. about that unrelated thing. No, no that's not a good-looking business. Road barriers? Oh. oh, concrete blocks is right, so that's a commodity. But no, this irrigation business oh, okay. looks like, again, it's a low percentage of the service that they're helping, the product they're helping, so they get pricing power. Margins consistently in the mid to upper teens. Return on assets at a high of 14% this year, up from 11 last year. Only a little bit of leverage, so mid-teens return on equity. They've got, uh, let's see, they may even have net cash. I'm looking here. Cash, $143 million. So it looks like they have uh, net cash in the amount of about, where's shares here? So maybe 12 bucks a share or so on a $79 stock price. Enterprise value to EBITDA 7, that's a 14% cash and cash return. PE going forward of 15 times. 
enterprise value to sales, 1%. And in this case, Mo, the stock is at the low end of its range. I'm not sure why, because they haven't disappointed any analysts recently. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's only seven of them. So could be just undiscovered. You know, the one, <clears throat> the one thing that did catch my eye, because I looked at that, how many analysts, and there were seven. And... Um, no real changes in the, uh, the earnings estimates. The stock has slowed down. There's no question about it. But these guys, in aggregate, have this stock rated a hold. So the question that I have is, um, given the fact that you know you can make a very good case for the, you know, both of the segments, the returns and, and the growth, somehow these seven guys, uh, either they think the stock is overpriced, or they think it's reaching their price targets, or they think there may be something systemic happening in the industry that things are slowing down. Every once in a while, I do catch a little bit of a sniff of something in the, or a red flag from seven people with a hold rating, especially in this kind of a bull market. Everything's a buy in this kind of a market. Well, there's something up, definitely, so, with this one. Anyway, with that one caveat, yeah, interesting interesting name. Okay, Lindsay Carr. Next up, uh, Zag Inc., ticker Z-A-G-G. What do you think, Mo? I think uh, you like this one. I thought it was. I said it was intriguing. These guys make cell phone covers. Very trendy. It's uh, they've only been around since two thousand four, and uh, it's a trendy business. Someone can come along with the new it iPhone case, and if it's not yours, you can lose a huge chunk of market share. But it's a but it's a big industry. What what intrigues me is that the stock. You know, was up 24% in 2008, 300 in 2009. It was up another 90% in 2010, and it may simply have gotten ahead of itself. Well, so one, are we looking at the sales? And all, if you look at all of the, uh, the the fundamentals, you tell me what you think. To me, when I eyeballed it, it looked as though this was a company that was gradually just maturing. And now the question is, is that fully baked into the price? And are you going to start seeing a, a company that's a modest growth company and not one that's that's uh, you know that's in decline because it's down twenty seven percent this year. Well, again, this screen forty four out of two hundred thousand companies, and who knows where there's two hundred thousand companies made the screen. This is one of them, and it's down. It's fifty uh, two week range, basically five to eleven. The stock's at five thirty five. So. Just a little bounce off its low. Within the last few months, there's six analysts, and on average, they dropped their estimate 36%. So clearly, they missed an earnings number yeah. about three months ago. And all I would say about that is when I look at their sales mo, so back in December 07, here's how it goes 5 million, 19 million, 38 million, 76 million, 179 million, 264 million, and then, and then uh, 273. So this clearly is a story where they were rolling out distribution. Maybe back in 07, they just had a little store in their hometown in Salt Lake City. And then in 08, they got the western region of, uh, you know, 99 cent only. And then in 09, they got the Kmarts in uh, Montana, whatever. And they've just been rolling it out, adding doors, as they say, in the industry. And now it's flying And they out. didn't get a new big client this year. No. And, uh, <clears throat> and so... Uh, or is the entire industry simply maturing? It, there could be another answer, which is that, you know, Apple sometimes announces new phones quickly or all these new phones, and they just haven't adapted to where the distribution channel still likes them, but they've taken six of the pegs these guys used to use, and they're putting 
iPhone 5s or Samsung 5s. You can also get stuck with a lot of ex, uh, um, obsolete inventory. Yeah. If all of a sudden you're, you've just done a big production run of something for a phone that gets discontinued and you didn't know about it. Exactly. Or you didn't... Yeah. I'm going to guess that they have return privileges, so you send a bunch of purple covers and no one likes them. So there's so the risk. Question, so the question is, it's, it's way off of its high, as it should be, but if it's simply the... If it's simply the fact that the company's now going to have to be a slower growth company going forward, it's not going to have that explosive. It's just going to be chugging along in a mature industry. Does this price justify that outlook? And part of it is, what do you think is going to happen to the margin? So, as the product becomes commoditized, uh, as people don't, you know, cell phones don't change as much, you keep your thing longer, whatever. 55% is pretty... Yeah, 55, but now it's down. It started yeah. at 51. Yeah. Then 46, 40, 43, 42, and then, you know, I mean, could it be at 35, 30? I mean, I don't know. So that's a risk. Part of that's pricing, of course, caused by competition. As it gets commoditized, their margin is going to go down. They do put up this nice 20% EBITDA margin, but could that go to 12? Yeah. That's what my concern was just be pricing yep. on something like that. Well, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tough, it's a pretty tough business, but now on the good side, four times EBITDA, they do seem to have distribution. So maybe you know if something's not working, if they get something else back in there quickly, they won't lose that. And do you think cell phones are growing faster than the economy? Uh, probably they still are. So. Just, at this point, cell phones are going to start tracking birth rates because yeah. <laughs> That's where we are, I think. I uh, I don't know. I'm only lukewarmish yeah, on yeah, this yeah. one. Me Mo. too. Me too. Okay. So, so that's all we have. Three stocks. And uh, But we need to talk about. Do we? Oh, and see which one we like the best? Or? Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say, what about paging through? Well, of course. We have yes. to... Uh, uh, I guess we'll save our, fa- our uh, favorite to the end. Yes. And uh, we right back? now we're going to move to the part of the show we call... Paging through national economic trends, where we bring you all the news that you need to know to track the U.S. economy. And be a better citizen. Of course. And, uh, but we haven't done any of that work, so we'll have to go do that now, and we will be right back. everybody after uh, printing out our national economic trends from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and uh, studiously going through oh. every single chart at length there's there's probably 2,000 charts in here which explains why the sun's coming up yeah and we've been through every one so um, federal you know Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis it's free it's everything you need to know there's all sorts of great stats and stuff in there for you armchair economists, uh, etc. So uh, what do you got this week, Mo? Anything interesting? Well, you know, the first thing I was going to, you know, that really jumps out at you, and it's been in the news a lot, is when you look on page three of this this, this group of charts, and uh, look at look at interest rates. Look at what's happening. Yeah. It, they are, wow, 
So it's a, you know, it's a great time. It's, it's providing a lot of fuel. But if you incorporate that pretty dramatic chart, and for people that can't see it, it's basically showing that short-term interest rates since the middle of 2012 have been on a very distinctly upward march. Yeah. And more recently, very recently, we've had a big spike up. Yeah, and so when you go from one five to two five, people don't think about it. That's a sixty percent increase, right. sort of. Mm -hmm. So, my question was, if then you look on page seven, yeah, this is what long-term interest rates look like. Yeah, and you can see this little upward tick, but you can see the upward tick of the last year and a half. Yeah, within a historical perspective, going back yeah. to the mid eighties. Yeah, right, exactly. And we're in uncharted territory. I mean, rates have never really been this low, so when they start to rebound, I think we're all in good, you know, reasonable territory to ask, where can they rebound to? Certainly not where they were in the 90s. Maybe not even where they were in 04. What's a, you know, we have to look back 20 years to see where normalized rates should be. Well, what's normalized? Well, you know, very man's good normalized. I mean, someone born today will think... Uh, you know, it's but here's my perspective on this because this decline in interest rates, if we've talked about, has been through our career, which is wind at the back of equities, which has been our business. So, which is why we've been such good yeah, stock pickers. Can it be as good <laughs> in the future? But here's my take: the interest rate is really the price of money. If I want money, I have to pay the interest rate. So, in some sense, you can, you know, draw a supply and demand curve for money, and that helps you understand the rate. You got to take account of inflation. One reason the rate is so low is that inflation is so low. You know, 30 years ago, you were baking in a 5% inflation, 6% inflation. Interest rates were at 8 That was too real. Now you got 25 or 3 and you got basically very little inflation. Although we expect it, we, we aren't seeing it yet. And so you got to look at real returns, which this chart is not. It's, right. it's So that accounts for some of it. But the other part I'd say, Mo, my, just my opinion, I'm not an economist, but... When you look at the baby boomers, they end up having a huge effect on any market that they're touching. So back in the 60s, when the baby boomers were, you know, just getting old enough for school and houses, you had a big boom in suburbs and schools and all that. Uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, boomers are getting cars. Those were the peak years for Detroit, auto builds, I mean, until recently, long-term peak, housing, all those things the same way. Inflation peaked at that time. Maybe it was in part because of the excess demand for, for goods beyond the uh, capacity to build them because of the surge of baby boom demand. And so with that perspective, and I could you know, go on, the energy crisis, the same thing, et cetera. Well, now we're at a point where boomers are uh, retiring. The boom years were 46 through 62. Right now, if you turn 65, you were born in, uh, what year, Mo? 1948 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, the, the baby boomers are now, it's the front wave of retirements. And so stats show us you have more money than you would ever have in your life right as you're retiring because you're going to live on that. And you have more of these people than ever before. So... One reason rates are low, price of money is low, is there's a lot of excess money. There's a lot of retirees. Why are treasury bonds so low? Because so many people want to buy treasury bonds including, for safety. Including foreign governments. Yeah, so there's a huge demand for those things, and that keeps the price 
in effect high, which keeps yields low. And I think that explains a lot of it. It's unfortunate for those that saved up money carefully over their lives and expected to get a 6% return in order to live, and now they can only get 3 But this maybe gives a little good news to those people because you, you do have a little recovery. And I always think if the price of money is going up right now, that means the demand for money is going up. Presumably the people demanding it have something to do with it, and that ultimately to me is a sign that the economy probably has a little bit more room because people are borrowing money again, and they're paying up for it a little bit. And so let's hope they have something smart to do with it. Usually they do. So. Well, I had something, Mo. Uh, let's see here. On uh, page 4, National Economic Trends, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, I'm looking at the real gross domestic product. Obviously, a lot of information out there about the weak economy. Uh, now, again, I, the argument I just made for demographics could be made here. Because baby boomers are retiring, you have people coming out of the workforce. GDP is work. You can't print GDP. That Printing money without you know, real goods or services is inflationary. You got to have goods and services to go along uh, with it. And here you got people retiring, and so those were workers, and they're retiring. And you don't the ratio of new workers coming on to old workers going off has never been as low as it is now. And in part, that uh, explains some of the weakness. The other thing is that the sequester, government spending, which is a contributor to GDP growth, over the last year or two has been a negative contributor to the amount of, you know, half to three-quarters of a percent of GDP. So when you look at GDP growth in the, you know, two percent range, government's a negative 50, 50 basis points. You've got to add that 50 back and maybe add it again on the other side because government will grow ultimately with population growth and such. So I think you're looking at that flipping around next year, Mo, and GDP probably being on the higher end than maybe people are thinking right now. Just because government is going to stop shrinking, it always lags, tax receipts are going to come along, and you're going to get some of that. So I, I took note of that. You know, there's a chart, bottom of page 11, Yeah, that I think may actually give you the timing of this big transition you're looking at. Really? It's a, it's page a, 11. Page 11, Got bottom right-hand side. Okay. And it's right here. Oh, yeah. And what that shows is, one, they're plotting one against the other. As the job openings rate has risen, yeah. the unemployment rate has declined. Because job openings get filled by the unemployed. Those two lines had crossed in 2008. In other words, the job openings was as great or greater than the unemployment yeah. rate percentage. If we're heading in that direction, you can plot these two out and determine maybe 2017 or 2016, more likely 2016, is when this big change... You're back in equilibrium. And the, then you're going to start possibly seeing some real inflation. So that, Wage growth inflation right. at that point. Yeah. Based on this, it looks like that's one year out. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, Visit us next year and see if we're right. Yeah, that's a good point, Mo. Uh, that's Inflation is undoubtedly down the road. Not only have... The feds, I mean, they're, they're buying bonds with money they print over there. They're increasing the money supply, 
increasing the balance sheet of the Fed at a rate that I've talked about this. There's a companion piece to national economic trends called national uh, financial trends, I think. And in there is all the Federal Reserve data. And my whole career, there were lines that never moved until recently, you know, in the crisis, and boom. And it's uh, the Fed buying all these uh, buying all these bonds for cash. So that's got to unwind the so-called tapering. But I think the markets absorb that a little bit. We That's good if we do that. So, uh, okay, I had, uh, I think I had something else here. I ripped a page somewhere. Um, well, first, first I just... Page? Uh, on the, you know, on the, uh, no, I got that one. That was the government spending thing. On the interest rate, it's funny. Interest rates are up. But look, when we look at this 30-year chart, Mo, it looks as if interest rates, yeah, they're they're up to all the way where they were back at the beginning of 2012. <laughs> That's funny. Um, the, and then this just ties in right below that is a chart that a yield curve. The yield curve has been steepening, which simply means the uh, yields on bonds that are maturing in the <clears throat> seven to ten year range have been going up while those maturing in the one to two year range have not been going up and so you get this widening gap between um, you know what you can earn on a longer term versus a shorter term security and that's good for banks because they tend to lend at you know if you've got a checking account you know what they're paying you for funds zero and they don't pay much for deposits at all these days and yet when you get out to this five to seven year spot on the curve, that's what they, plus a premium, their ability to charge on loans is starting to go up. And banks, which are, you know, they've been bad investments for most of this period, banks are uh, looking like they're going to get into a good period here. And I don't have to pick a particular bank. Just pick a bank in an area that's growing faster than the economy, some little town with a lot of government or medical or some kind of telecom. Or a value guys franchise. Yeah, well, all of those stimulate local growth. Those are great. So I guess that's all we have this week, ladies and gentlemen. This has been the Value Guys Stock Talk Show. Uh, all the value stocks you need to know and more. It's July, uh, what? 13th? 13th, 2013. And uh, thanks for listening, and everybody. Oh, our favorite. I'm sorry. Did we? I have a favorite this week, Mo. Lindsay Corp. Lindsay Corp is my favorite, and uh, that's for Phil, and I don't know if you have a favorite, Mo. I did like Lindsay Corp. And I'm well, not I've already, I, do you want to both like Lindsay we can, Corp? We can okay. both like Lindsay Corp. Okay. Yeah, Lindsay Corp it is. Um, thanks for listening in. See all our caveats, disclosures, index, uh, indexes to past shows, etc. at www.thevalueguys.com. So long, everybody. Have a good week.